Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz saxophonist, author, and music critic Tom Moon of the Ensemble Novo. We caught up with him about new music, COVID, his life in music, hope in 2021, and beyond. Ensemble Novo is a Philadelphia-based five-piece band inspired by the music of Brazil. The group creates a warm, spacious, perfect-for-chilling sound. Tom is an award-winning music journalist that started sharing his original music back in 2011. He's got a great story. Enjoy. Joe Domino, Neon Jazz Radio in Kansas City. Joe, how you doing? Hey, man. Living the dream, my man. How you holding up? All right. <laughs> Good. Man, let me tell you something. Before we get into this, I just got to tell you. I get CDs all the time, and I pop them in, and there's some that just totally arrest me. You get this flavor of emotion that comes in. Ensemble Novo is one of the funnest, most adventurous, chill, very worthwhile quarantine dreams that I could ever imagine. Wow, thank you so much. First of all, thanks for listening because, as you know, that's an uphill battle. Yeah. <laughs> so it, is. it means a lot to us when, you know, when we hear that anyone spent any time with it at all. <laughs> Man, I, I enjoyed this so much. I got two discs and I have kept one. And one of my best friends, his name is Kevin Rabus. He's a jazz cat in Kansas. Well, he lives in Emporia. He was the poet laureate of Kansas for about three years. And I mailed him a copy, and I said, "You have to listen to these guys." So it's oh, that's uh, it's, awesome. Yeah, it's spreading. The, the word <laughs> is spreading. But at, at any rate, man, I really enjoyed it, and I'm really excited to talk to you about the band and your life and music and beyond. So I appreciate it. Sure. Well, thank you. I appreciate you. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Just standing on the shoulders of giants. So let's start off here with it's coming out during a global pandemic. You got new material and people are, you know, it, it seemed like last year people were like, yeah, I'm releasing this. I didn't know a pandemic was going to happen and it's a bummer. I can't do anything live. But it's like we've migrated to this point where this is the one chance that you have to connect with listeners by releasing music. Yeah, well, we uh, our decision-making process was this. We had a bunch of stuff that we recorded, some of it during the, the very beginning part of the pandemic before we even realized how bad it was going to be. Uh, and the whole thing was mixed during the pandemic. But our, our main thought was, you know, this is a rescaling of everything to do with culture in America and the world. And we are, everything's in a big rethink. It gave us a, a tiny bit of hope, and I'll never forget the, our drummer, Jim Hamilton, saying this, was he said, you know, we should share this if for no other reason than people want something that sounds like it was made at a human scale. It, it, that sounds like it is not something that's a manufactured product type thing that has, you know, sort of, gobs of of sparkle on it. it i really took that to heart because i feel like one thing that i have gone for in in my listening this year is you know solo piano recordings things duos uh small forces just you know small group work where you can feel there's an intimacy you, you know we've just started to play live again and it's you know it's very skittish we're not we're not there yet we are still as you say in the middle of this pandemic but it, it's starting what we're starting to see 
is that that idea of just not trying to have a lot of artifice, just trying to play and, and create some kind of warm sound within five people and then see what happens as that goes out in the world. It, 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 you know, music is healing energy, I believe. And if we're in it for something other than a financial gain, and as we know, there is no financial anything in music anymore, really. If we're in it yeah. for the, 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 the notion of sharing a vibration and sharing some energy, um, this is a good time because I feel that the broad listenership for music of all kinds is hungry for that thing, that sort of very intimate connection, something where, you know, you don't even have to listen to the notes someone's playing. You know, the minute you hear, you know, Melissa Aldana say, you are brought into the texture of her world, and that is that that itself has healing power. Well, and I think what you've said just totally nails and captures the essence. I mean, you were doing something that you definitely feel the soul of. You start throwing that Brazilian flavor into it, and it just brings it out. But this is something that seems to me as though you can play in the background at a get-together, or you can seriously listen to, like, for me, the real Pepsi challenge for me is driving around and popping it in, and I still have a CD player albeit it's a little beat up, I still watch, I want the world to go around me. I want to feel like the music move with me. And the thing about this, when I immediately put it in is like, it was, it was go time. And I think that's the thing that's really broad about this is that you can think about it like a kind of blue, or you can just let it go in the background. Like it's in a coffee shop. Well, yeah. And you know, let's, that's, that, that to me is success. Um, that's what we want because we're very much aware that anymore, uh, people with streaming, people are browsing all the time. And the browse is a great thing for people to discover music. I use it, you use it, we all use it. But it doesn't really encourage like something that you, that you do just sort of stay with. And so in our listening as a group, we talk a lot about what something feels like and can this the, the experience that you describe of can we put something on and just let it go and pay attention or not and you know to me like again it gets back to that idea of this is vibrational energy and if we can be of service while you're chopping vegetables and you're barely even aware that music is on that's beautiful we're into that <laughs> So how did you all come together? Clearly, the backbone to anything that works well, especially in the world of jazz, is that there is a lot of good communication, which means that there's going to have to be a good relationship. So how did this group come together and evolve to what we have now? So I didn't play for about 20 years. I, I went to music school and then uh, had a career as a journalist. I still I still write and and work for NPR every once in a while. In in one of my writing gigs uh, at the Philadelphia Inquirer, I was not permitted to play music professionally. So I stopped, and then life happened. I had a kid. Th things took me away from playing. And at a certain point, I started to just get antsy to play and make music again. And I encountered this guitar player who is part of Ensemble Novo. His name's Ryan McNeely. We hit it off in this unbelievable way at a jam session one night somebody called Corcovado or one of the Antonio Carlos 
Jobim tunes that is common at, you know, commonly played by jazz people. And I heard him play this Zhao Gilberto guitar rhythm, and I was like, you, sir, sound like you've really digested Zhao Gilberto. And we talked for a while, and I came back the next week. He was there, and we played. And that's how it started, and it was completely that very telegraphic, crisp, uh, acoustic guitar, nylon string guitar uh, sound. And, you know, he had it, and then we went looking for other people that, that uh, sort of had that in their ears. And the next person we found was Jim Hamilton, the percussionist, and he is a veteran of many great groups here in Philly, uh, of, of across all kinds of world music, and he's developed this percussion rig that do, that looks like a drum set, but it's not a drum set, and it's his own sort of concoction. He plays pandero. He's he's toured a lot in Brazil, and he's gathered a lot of uh, Brazilian percussion instruments. And when the three of us started to play, it was like, oh man, this is there's something here. Uh, and from there, it just sort of snowballed. We were incredibly lucky to uh, find Ben Galise, the amazing vibraphonist, and who also had, who's been playing in New York and Philly as a jazz musician. He has wonderful records, a new record on Positone right now, um, and he's, he's very active. And it turns out he's got like a serious Jones for Brazil, Brazilian music and knew a lot of material that we didn't know. So that's kind of how it was. And um, that was about shoo, seven years ago. We, we were incredibly lucky at one point. And I, w I really want to say this because it relates to the pandemic. You know, we're all a little worried about going out and being in public and going to bars and stuff. We're smart to do that. We have to be cautious right now. But we are so in debt. This group owes its existence to a, a little place in Philadelphia called Time Restaurant and Whiskey Bar. And about six years ago, seven years ago, I guess, uh, they invited us to do a Wednesday night. And we, you know, we thought it was a one-off Wednesday night, had basically been there ever since up until the pandemic. What that did for us was it enabled us to bring in new music once a month. We'd, we'd you know, we'd discover a tune and we'd be like, okay, we got to write that out. We got to figure out how to make that work. And we built a repertoire by playing in public. And that is another thing that we really miss, of course. Uh, about pandemic times, and you know, this this place is still there. We we hope to play there again. They're very slowly returning to live music, but the idea that little clubs can nurture things during the pandemic, we became incredibly aware that this small little place had given us essentially a life and helped us grow in terms of our communication together, help us grow in terms of the material and our understanding of the material and develop a little bit of an audience here in Philly. Wherever you live, there are places that are trying to do things like that. And please support them <laughs> uh, because they're all struggling right now. And they they perform sort of a two-sided mission. They're, they're, you know, a lot of clubs are are in the business of trying to 
entertain people and host guests and uh, make a good, nice meal, a nice evening. But they're also in the business of developing culture. And this, I feel, is very important. And we, we, we don't think about this a lot because, you know, culture is usually seen at the concert hall level. But I believe it's, it's the grassroots level that's more interesting and more vital and, and in more danger right now. And, and I'm glad you said that because a part of this conversation is obviously what's going on and the elephant in the room is this pandemic and us coming out of it and the revival. And I think that's the thing that we all need to be very cognizant of is that if we didn't have art during this time, it would have been really bad. And I think that people need to understand that this stuff isn't done for free. There needs to be kind of a, an embracing of this and building it back up because these clubs that you're mentioning are huge. They are the fabric of everything. If you even go back to the, be the beginnings of the Beatles or the Stones, they were in pubs in England. I mean, these weren't, they didn't That's go, right. you know, you too and all these places. They didn't go to big places and they struggled for almost a decade before anybody even knew who they were. So yeah, when you talk about the fabric of America and the musical train that we're all on, if we didn't have the little clubs like Kansas City, we have a lot of these little places that hatch thousands of dreams every night. And if we didn't yeah. have that, maybe that's a part of what we need to collectively grab because we did slow down long enough to say, you know what, when we get back to it, let's really nurture and take care of these places. That's right. And, and they do need to be, they, they need care. It's tending on, on all sides of this equation. And I believe that what will happen, what we've seen already in, in very light little glimmers is that the hunger, the desire to be in the proximity to a live performative experience brings people, creates empathy, brings people an enormous amount of pleasure, a feeling of serenity, whatever, you know, whatever emotional word you want to use, there is a renewed appreciation for what goes into that. And it's a lot. You know, the, a lot of these places cannot put music on right now. They can't afford it. They, they are, you know, uh, they're a year behind on whatever the, the budget they're working with is all about. And, you know, they're struggling and these, the, uh, the 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 loans to venues are a great thing, but even there, um, in many places, what I'm reading is that they are going to capacities that are higher than the grassroots level. Well, you clearly have a passion for music as a musician and a journalist, and you've been you've dedicated your life to it. Talk to me a little bit about your beginnings, where you were born and raised, and how these seeds were planted in you. So I grew up in uh, McLean, Virginia, right outside of D.C., and in those days it was kind of a sleepy town. But my high school was Langley High School, and that adjoins the CIA's Langley. The Langley compound of the CIA was basically back behind our football field, surrounded by mega fencing even then in the 70s. And at that school, I lost my father when I was very young, so I was raised by a single mother. And at that school, I encountered a first male role model in my life who also happened to be the band director. His name was George Horan, and he is with me every day. This man believed, he, he drew this distinction. He said, I am not a music teacher. I am a musician who teaches. He was the only uh, educator in 
Fairfax County school system that refused to field a marching band. We played, the jazz band sat in stands at football games and played, you know, football appropriate music, you know, fight songs and stuff, but we did not march. He refused to do that. And he was just this irascible Bostonian who, who was a wonderful trumpet player, and every day we would come into the band room, he would either be at the piano or with the trumpet practicing. And he basically showed me and many others a way to to have discipline in your life as it relates to art. And if, had he not done that, had I not been exposed to him, I, I don't even want to think about what my life would have been like. I mean, that's another one of these cases where a, a single individual sharing something that he wasn't even really sharing. I mean, he was practicing for himself, but by doing it there where we could see it and, and engage it, we learned. And he was a huge influence on me and, uh, you know, helped enormously enrich my uh, world of music. I, I'll tell one tiny story about him. You know, he, he was known to be a jazz trumpet player, but when Steely Dan's Asia came out, we were the, the, he gathered the members of the jazz band, it was called Jazz Lab, in this tiny little practice room that had a, a turntable, and he made us listen to Steely Dan's Asia. When it came out, we, no one had ever heard it, you know, maybe he'd heard a song on the radio or something, but you hadn't heard it yet. And our, our jaws were on the floor. We, it was like one of the things where, okay, this isn't really the music that we're dealing with, this is like some alien kind of harmony that who knows where it comes from. It's going to take a while to figure it out. But he thought it was important to share it with us. And, you know, I'll never forget, like, being a high school kid, looking around this room, which was small. We're all on top of each other. And listening to this, it was, it was wonderful. That's a great story. What a wonderful album to do that. I mean, I can't imagine when that album came out listening to it for the first time. I mean, yeah, that, that, that's a great story. So, you know, along that line right there, what was the first live show that you ever saw that really blew your curtains aside and said, you know what, I'd love to do that someday? Ironically, it was Charlie Bird, the guitarist who recorded with Stan Getz uh, in many different Brazilian small combo situations and large ensembles too, at a place called Blues Alley in Washington. And it was his trio and, you know, I'm not now, as a grown-up, the uh, biggest Charlie Bird fan, but there was something about the attack of his instrument in that room. Blues Alley, wonderful club in Georgetown in D.C. Uh, and there were like three or four of us from when we were in high school. We got, you know, we had to drink Cokes. We, it was like a big deal going there. But just the sounds of those instruments, they were so perfectly rendered. It was riveting. And that's what that's really the the first performance I saw that made me say, "Wow, this guy looks like everyone looked like they were having incredible fun making this music, but the sound of it and again i it was the music itself was beyond my comprehension, really, as a you know whatever a sophomore or junior in high school, but the sound of it got me. I was like, 
man, this guy's making this sound on guitar. The guitar is dancing. It's alive. It's crackling with energy. You know, nothing else like that. You got into journalism. It was clearly a lure for you. And it was enough for you not to do music for a little while. What was it about you that wanted to enter that world of journalism? And what, why did you love it so much? Um, well, it was mostly thinking about what this guy, George Horan, had said. This distinction about I'm a musician who teaches, not a music teacher. And I like that idea and I wanted to apply it to journalism. I thought it was important. You know, I went to the University of Miami School of Music, and while I was there, uh, I wrote some cranky letters to the editor of the art section at the Miami Herald because whoever they had reviewing records, I remember they would they would talk a lot about the covers, and they wouldn't really talk about the music. And I I was affronted by that because some of these records were really great important records, interesting records, and, you know, it would be, the discussion would be about, you know, how the woman looked on the cover, whoever it was, or whatever. And I felt like, you know, I didn't know a lot about journalism. I, I had never really done it. But I felt it was important to sort of say, hey, there's, you know, there's like a musical basis for what's in these records, and we should see if we can't try and discuss that a little bit. So it was very, you know, idealistic kid energy when I started. <laughs> well, how do those worlds intermingle for you? You know, I mean, you, you have a multidisciplinary approach to your profession, and obviously it bleeds into who you are as a person. How do those two come together to make either your journalism stronger or you as a musician stronger? Well, the, the most obvious way, and that's a great question, uh, because it it has to do with the ways we all grow as listeners, everyone, regardless of whether they're a musician or not. It's the exposure to the unknown. It's the encounter with the unknown. You know, I was when I worked at the Inquirer in Philly, I was covering you know, like Whitney Houston shows and Miles Davis shows. I mean, I was I was like seeing a lot of different music and you know. Uh, the the night that everyone was um, having the the great encounter with Nirvana at a small bar in Philly, I was at the arena uh, covering like you know Backstreet Boys show or something. <laughs> so so but the idea of just encountering stuff that you didn't know about, some of it you love, some of it you don't. And having the having the disposition, and it's really just that. It's not any special skill. It's not like you have to know music to appreciate music. It's not like you have to know the theory. There was something about the work that you do as a musician when someone puts a piece of music in front of you and says, okay, this is what we're going to work on, and you have no frame of reference, and you just do it. There's something about that that activates some curiosity that I think is really important for listening. And um, I, I found over and over again in my life that whenever I think I know what's up <laughs> with any music in any genre, if I then pay attention to it, I discover there's another level or 10. <laughs> and yeah. that, that idea, the humility of just trying to engage it so you can learn more from it. And, you know, these records are all, I mean, you know, we don't think of records in the way that um, 
you know, they did in the 50s where, you know, it was like you had the one record from an artist that you could find at a store, and that's what you had. You didn't have a complete discography on Spotify that you could just access. And as a result, you sort of had to contend with that record in a different way. It, you had a different relationship with it. Your curiosity might be activated at, at different points. You, you might start hating it, but you wouldn't hate it and give it one spin or even 30 seconds and then throw it away. You would, you would work with it a little bit. And that is what I'm talking about. That curiosity, I think that, that feeds anything you do in any artistic discipline, uh, whether you're a writer, whether you're a, a performer, whether you're a, a critic, whether you're a DJ, whatever you, you know, at whatever level and whatever work you do to engage the art, the, the, the act of going after it and looking deeply in it and just being creative about it is really like that to me is the most important thing and it's very synergistic i mean as you know like the, the, the radio is magic for that because you take people from point a and you thread them to point b and then suddenly in a matter of 20 minutes they're in another place and yeah. you've done that not not by any trickery just by your own curiosity of, of making a path to that. And that's, that's, a, that's precious, and that is something that we need to sort of cultivate in, in, uh, in about the arts because there is something about the endless browse that discourages that level of engagement. So if you could get into a magic DeLorean time machine and go back in time and see anybody in the history of music, who would you go see and who would you want to talk to when they got off stage? Oh, man. It'd be different every day. Yeah. <laughs> Today, I would say uh, John Coltrane, you know, at, really at any point in his career. Um, and uh, for, you know, entirely selfish reasons of being someone who's, you know, sort of walked in the house where he lived in Philly and chronicled a lot of his time in Philly. Uh, you know, that, that he's like an immediate one. There's so many questions I have about him, you know, and for him about the work that he did and the discipline that he brought to it. Um, so, but, you know, if you ask me tomorrow, I'd say Elise Regina, the great singer from Brazil, uh, you know, I'd love to have five minutes with her and, uh, you know, uh, ask her about all those crazy early Bossa Nova times and then her, her breakthrough, and, you know, the Elise and Tom record and on and on. Let's yeah. say you have a dream tonight. You run into your younger self, the younger version of yourself. Around the time you were getting ready to become a professional and really get out there and get after it. And you could give yourself one piece of advice based on what you've learned through all these years. What would it be? Uh, I would say stay open, you know, like, uh, don't be a music snob, you know, I mean, and that was, that, that, that was part of what I was trying to say about, about the working in journalism, you know, nowadays, people who are music journalists identify themselves by, often by a very narrow specialty, like they pay attention to death metal from the 80s to the, you know, to, to the new century or something. And to me, that is talking to a self-selected small audience 
and it is concerning itself with a small range of endeavor. And, you know, anyone who is an artist, it's like that's that's like a, a path toward obsolescence, I think, you know, because when you look at someone like Wayne Shorter, you know, he would never do that. Wayne Shorter is, you know, he's he's just engaged with the world at every possible level. And, you know, someone says, would you like to write an opera, Mr. Shorter? And he says, sure, you know. Uh, whether or not he has the training or, you know, whatever the requisite uh, skill set is, he will acquire the skill set by doing it. So I would tell myself, be open, be open to all of it. You know, don't dismiss, uh, you know, the Backstreet Boys or whoever just immediately because it, it doesn't ring the bell for you right away. You know, a lot of music, it's like it works for somebody and our job is to sort of figure out what that is and you know if you're an artist you want to you want to use that information you want to sort of figure out like well these guys are doing something right <laughs> they're ringing the bell you know it's yeah. like we we all want to ring the bell so what do we what do we need to do as artists as as thinkers as people and you know that all to me derives from being open. So every day you wake up as a creator, as either a musician or a journalist, there's something that's churning in you. What do you look forward the most? What what is what is the most satisfying part of being a creative entity? Oh, wow, these are great questions. That, that it, I I think it's honestly I think it's the chance to do the chance to just be in the making of something to you know be in a room with people that you like love to play with and see what you can kind of concoct at that moment with the resources available um likewise you know what can you bring to uh you know the task of you know addressing a record or or you know writing something it's the same thing it's this like can we go after it and make something today, you know? And, like, I, I'm endlessly inspired by the, the Blue Note era and those records that were made in a few hours that, you know, I, I love the fact that the writing is very complex sometimes and intricate, but that these guys walked in, they read the charts down, they did the, the you, you know, they, they grappled with it, they made something. And, you know, at the end of the day, they may not have felt that this was a pinnacle, that it was a career high or whatever. But when we listen to, you know, Hank Mobley now, we we're, we're like, yes, <laughs> soul state. Yeah. Yes, you did that. That happened in a day, and it's a world culture classic now. And the fact that that is available to us is what's most inspiring to me. We may not get there. We we likely won't, but. That doesn't mean you don't try, and the 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 chance, the 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 long shot possibility that you could make something that you could be proud of is is just tantalizing. You know, you want to do it every day. The one thing that you've said during our interview here that's been that, that's always wondrous is that there was a mentor that did something for you, and it almost sounds like this cat was who he was, and because of who he was, he led. And he inspired those around him. So my question to you is, you've had an incredible wealth of things that have happened to you as a curious sort, as a journalist, as a musician. 
What have you accumulated over this time that you in turn have had the chance to impart on the young that have been around you, that you aspire to be a musician or a journalist? Mostly it's that it's this exact idea of, of openness and discipline. And those are, those are often too, uh, they're often at odds, right? Because discipline we think of as this thing you just sort of like, you know, nose to the grindstone, do the work, play the scales. And then openness is this like, you know, sort of, okay, my heart's open now. I can, you know, embrace what the world gives. And, um, when, like, you know, when I talk to young musicians when, when we're playing, and I am incredibly lucky, I should say this, uh, to be, like, you know, in proximity to a lot of young, young players, people who are just starting out their professional careers, and who are open to the, not, not, I have to be careful, because they're 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 wanting to play with ever anyone and everyone, and that includes an old head like me. And I am incredibly grateful for that. Um, so, what I often try to share is our examples in music of people who were both disciplined and just sort of wildly genre blind and didn't care about where where something was filed in a record store but we're open, fundamentally open as people and as, as creators. And, you know, this generation, the, the people that are, that are rising right now, that are coming out of music schools and, you know, are entering the, the career phase of their lives, this generation has the, the incredible the database in the sky of anything and everything that has ever been made. They know how to access that database, so they are mapping for themselves a world of understanding about music that is very different from the one uh, that that I did, you know, pawing through records at stores. And um, I'm I'm I think that's an enormous wide open. We don't know where that's going to lead situation right now, but. One thing I do know is that that creates, if people have a little bit of discipline, that the, the, the fact that so much is available creates that openness. And, you know, so I, what I try to impart is, you know, oh, you think you, 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 you know, we all think we know what's up. And then it suddenly somebody drops a record on people that just makes them go, what was that? And, you know, the fact that that can happen to someone who's been, covering music and paying attention to music for a long time and literally happen every day is a mind-blowing thing. It's hard hard to contend with that sometimes. You know, it's hard for young people to to get their mind around that. And so I'm I, you know, in my in in my professional life as a musician, I'm always throwing, you know, records at people. I'm always saying, "Hey, you got to check this out." And and asking on the on the return end, what they hear, and trying to draw people into in, in general, whether it's in my work as a musician or a writer, trying to draw people into conversations about what worked for them, what didn't work, and and what what we can learn from that response. You know, like if it didn't ring the bell for you, it's like what is that telling? You know, and like trying to get people to listen in a deeper way. 
I guess is is the <laughs> the short answer. And I'm sorry for the long answer. No, that's fine. That's fine. So everyone has their perception of you, the role that you play in life, your family, your friends, your fans, readers, listeners, but you ultimately are the one that wakes up and lives your life each day. Who do you think you are? Uh, student. Student of music. Um, you know those little biographies that Twitter makes you put on your thing? Yeah. Um, you know, I think mine says listener, student of music. And, you know, um, that is, is, sounds very broad and generic, but I really, you know, in this moment, I'm like sort of more of a student than I was when I was a student, if that makes any sense. And, and I, I'm like, I, I, I feel incredibly lucky to be able to engage music that way, but even more than that, it's like, I, I'm I'm inspired by people, you know, and we we know many in this world who are fundamentally like in their art they're doing one thing, but they're receiving art and they're they're listening and they're they consider themselves students. I mean, you could ask Charles Lloyd that question, and he would probably say the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So. Let's leave on a final note here with Ensemble Novo, and I want, to, I want to know this. Whether if you go on or come to Kansas City, you have to pitch the band. Somebody comes across yeah. your name, they don't know what you do. Or somebody sees you on the music charts, and they want, to, they, they want to know whether or not they should buy you. You can pitch right now why someone should either see you live or get your recorded music. What, what is it about your vibe and what you do that would really be pleasing to a listener? So the uh, the generic like sort of marketing line would be we look at the music of Brazil through a jazz lens, and uh, that's the entirety. We try to go beyond just bossa nova. We we've been playing a lot of samba from the 30s. Uh, we play a, a lot of music from the northeast part of Brazil. So part of the pitch would just be that marketing tag. We're what we're we're exploring Brazilian music as an instrumental entity from with the orientation of a jazz uh, jazz improviser and you know beyond that what i'd say is when you hear us you encounter something that's incredibly open because the percussion is not a kit drum it's not the usual like kick drum snare drum hi hat it's it's more colorful than that. It's also played on very light sticks, and that sounds like a small thing, but it's it actually creates this incredible lightness in in music. That um, we've had people say, you know, you guys are playing with a lot of intensity, but it still sounds like a caress. And to me, that was the best compliment ever, um, because what we want is we want to share these beautiful melodies in a way that makes them accessible. But also, because it's music, it can be opened and expanded with improvisation, we want to see where we can take it. And, you know, our hope is that you, you come see us, you're, you're entranced by the, the sonics and the textures, and, you know, maybe through that you go take this journey with us into, you know, some crazy place in, in the forest of Brazil that uh, we hope survives. 
Beautiful, man. Tom, this has been great, man. Thank you for opening up about the band, about your life as a journalist and music. Good luck with everything, man. Well, thank you so much, and thanks for listening, and thanks for asking such great questions. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest cats in Philadelphia, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Tom for his time, music, and story. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com, and for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.